All right, John, John chapter 19, we're going to pick up reading at verse 23 and read down through verse uh, 27. Before we read it, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful that we can not only read this passage and understand it because it's translated for us, but that we can also spend time thinking about it. And we know each week that unless your Holy Spirit takes the truths that we're about to look at and drives them deep into our soul, unless he does that work, we will leave here unfed. We will leave here unchanged. And none of us want that. And so we pray that you will do a mighty work, a great work uh, during this time so that those of us who believe will be uh, more like Christ and any of us who don't believe will come to believe and trust in Christ. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, uh, John 19 at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation with hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I want to just dive into the passage and begin by noticing how improbably Jesus fulfills uh, scripture. If you look at verse 24, we're told, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. Now, you know, going through the Gospel of Matthew, how often Matthew quotes the Old Testament. We've also noticed as we go through John, John doesn't usually quote it. He just alludes to it. But here, when Jesus is on the cross, John changes tune just a little bit, as it were. And he's making it very clear that Scripture is being fulfilled here. And if you look at verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. John is making it very clear to us, the readers, that what Jesus is doing on the cross is in order to fulfill Scripture. And why do I want us to notice this? I want us to notice this because what Jesus is doing here is, if I'm just going to dwell in the math world for a while, statistically impossible. So there was a, a Peter Stoner, a professor of mathematics and astronomy and science at a couple different colleges, Pasadena City College and then Westmont College. He died in 1980. He wrote a book, Science Speaks. And in this book, he calculated, along with some students and colleagues, the chances that one man, in particular Jesus Christ, Peter Stoner was a believer, 
what are the chances that one man could fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies, which might sound to us like, oh, it, it's hard, but maybe not impossible. Uh, and he uh, finished his calculations. He and some students and colleagues worked through them. He actually submitted them to the American Scientific Affiliation, and they concluded that his calculations were accurate and very dependable. Now, this is a non-Christian institution. They looked at his math and said, as far as you've done the math, this is great. What did he discover? This. In order for Jesus to fulfill just eight prophecies, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled, what John is talking about, the odds of that happening are one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Now, to put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of filling the entire state of Texas. Every child here who's done U.S. geography will know Texas is a big state, right? Big. Take the entire state of Texas, you know those silver dollar coins? Fill the entire state of Texas with them two feet high, okay? That's a lot of coins. That's the number. That's the problem. And then mark one of them with a black Sharpie blindfold somebody and tell them to walk all over Texas in two feet of silver dollar coins and find the one that's got the Sharpie on it. That's the, that's the probability that one person will fulfill even eight prophecies. Someone else did the math on 16 prophecies. For someone to fulfill them, as Jesus did, it's one in 10 with 45 zeros behind it. Now take that number of silver dollars, press it into a ball, and take that ball and put the center of the ball where the sun is. That ball would be as big as Neptune's orbit. Neptune, I think Pluto's no longer a planet, right? So Neptune's the last one. So as big as our solar system is that ball, okay? Three dimensions. The diameter of it is 5.6 billion miles. Put a Sharpie mark on one of those silver dollars, blindfold somebody and send them out into the solar system and see if they can find it. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling 16 prophecies. Stoner actually did 48 prophecies too. It's a one in 10 with 150 zeros behind it. And instead of using silver dollars, now think of electrons. If you lined up 15 quadrillion electrons in a row, it would equal one inch, okay? Quadrillion is just over a trillion, okay? Million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. If you lined 15 quadrillion electrons in a row would be one inch. If you took the number of electrons, one in 10 with 157 zeros behind it, and packed them all into a ball, that ball would be as big as our known universe in electrons. You blindfold somebody, you put a Sharpie mark on electron, I'm not sure we can do that, but let's say we did. You send this blindfolded person out into the known universe to find that one electron somewhere out there among the stars. That's the chances that one person could fulfill 48 prophecies. And Peter Stoner said this, to the extent then that we know this blindfolded man cannot pick out the marked electron, we know that the Bible is inspired. This is not merely evidence. It is proof of the Bible's inspiration by God, proof so definite that the universe is not large enough to hold the evidence. Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact, proof perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. So what do we do with a Jesus of Nazareth who fulfilled not 48 prophecies, but over 300 of them? What do we do with that? We believe in him. Not in the hopes that he might be the Messiah, but in the beyond the shadow of any possible doubt, uh, fact 
we believe in him because he is the Messiah. He has to be. No one could possibly even do this. If you believe that 10 plus 10 is 20, then you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Peter Stoner is getting at. And that's what the gospel writers are getting at as well. Not that they're doing the math, etc. But when they write, Jesus fulfills scripture. And here's something else which stood out as I was reading and studying. Psalm 22 is a psalm about crucifixion. If you read it, talking about his mouth is dried up like a pot's herd going through crucifixion. The Jews knew how to do capital punishment, but it was via stoning. If you read Psalm 22, it's not the record of somebody being stoned. It's the record of somebody being crucified. And that's why Jesus quotes copiously from it, beginning in verse 1, with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what's going on in Psalm 22 is a crucifixion is being described before the Persians ever started using it in the 6th century BC. This is 400 years before it was used commonly. People were impaled on wooden poles before crucifixion was used, but not crucified like that. And so we have even in Psalm 22, all about crucifixion, where Jesus now finds himself on the cross. We have a prophecy about an execution, a form of execution that hasn't even been really used yet. This is amazing, beloved, that we find Jesus on the cross impossibly fulfilling scriptures, which the Jews wouldn't have even been able to fulfill unless God was in charge of the entire narrative, getting Jesus on the cross. So I wanted to notice that first, that Jesus fulfilling these passages is simply impossible, but he did it. So what does that mean? It means he is the Christ and that we need to believe in him. And that's John and the gospel writers are proving. The second thing I want us to notice is that Jesus covers our shame. So verses 23 down to 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless. So no seams to the tunic. The other clothing divided up easily. We've got a seamless one-piece tunic. And they looked at it and thought, we're not going to tear this up. Let's just gamble for it. So they cast lots. They said, let's not tear it up. Let's cast lots for it. See who it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, straight out of Psalm 22. So Jesus was crucified. They cast lots for his clothing. They divided his garments. And again, that is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 16. What's going on here? Jesus was crucified naked. Now, this is not just a fulfillment of prophecy. This is rather profound. It's almost shameful. I'm guessing maybe some of us internally just went, oh, <laughs> that's, that's quite a, I don't know if I want to think about that. That's exactly right. We're starting to grasp the nature of uh, crucifixion if we uh, felt that or thought that. What's interesting, if you trace clothing and nakedness and shame all the way back through the Bible, you come to a passage like Genesis 2.25, where we're told the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And right after they ate of the fruit of the tree, they disobeyed God. The very next verse, just eight verses later, after we're told they're naked and not ashamed, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The shame was so palpable that they had us sew clothing. <laughs> we need clothing now. And I want us to think about this. R.C. Sproul 
talking about this said the dramatic focus is on nakedness when you first look at this in the Garden of Eden. The first emotional psychological response from humanity that humanity had on account of sin had to do with shame and nakedness. Guilt provokes shame and nakedness. Right before Adam and Eve sinned, we're told, it's, it's, it's a verse that you almost just passed by, oh, they were naked and unashamed, no big deal. Why is that even in there? Right after they fall into sin, the first thing we're told is not, oh, they sinned, they blew it, they're guilty. No, they were now, they knew they were naked and they're starting to clothe themselves. So nakedness and shame is part of the human story. The Holy Spirit is putting it right before and right after the fall into sin, telling us that is part of the story of being a human being. And R.C. Sproul picked up on this in a helpful way. He was actually preaching a sermon on Genesis 9 regarding um, Noah's nakedness and how his sons handled it. Now, what is going on here? Well, we all understand what's going on here in one sense. If we're in a cold climate, we dress ourselves up but if you put us in a hot climate, we dress ourselves down only so far. So if you're in Antarctic, right, we might put 10 layers of clothing on. Now, if it gets heat hot, it, let's say it's 90 degrees in Iowa, sweltering humidity, horrible conditions. What do we do? We take clothing off, but we'll have a t-shirt and shorts. It gets to be 100, shorts and a tank top. If it gets to be 110, shorts and a tank top. 120, shorts and a tank top. See where I'm going with this. We have no problem packing on layers. We can do 30 layers if we need to. But there comes a point where we stop taking stuff off. And we've done that. We're a species with, which clothes itself. Adam and Eve did it in the beginning. And God actually understood. God knows what, what we need regarding clothing, which is why in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He did away with their loincloths, these aren't good enough. I'm going to make you skins, which means an animal had to die. The language skins is the language for leather or hide. An animal died. A substitute was offered so that Adam and Eve could be clothed and deal properly with their shame. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, he was stripped naked. This was typical for Roman crucifixion. Nothing odd about that. Why was this happening? Because he was dealing with the shame of sin. He was forced to deal with the shame of being exposed in sin. And Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus had nothing to be ashamed about, nothing to hide, nothing to cover up, except that our sin was imputed to him. And now he, as the perfect one, is going to be stripped all the way naked and fully exposed for all of Jerusalem to stare at during the Passover feast. And he looked at that shame and he despised it. Not he just put up with it, but he actively despised the shame, as it were, saying to that shame, I don't care how much shame it is. It's beneath me. I'm going to count it as a little thing and I'm going to go do the work that I've been given to do. He despised the shame. And Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, wrote this regarding Jesus and shame. Jesus' crucifixion is as emblematic of shame as it is of sin. Crucifixion was intended not only to execute victims, but to simultaneously humiliate them. Before being crucified, victims were usually stripped naked. It's difficult to imagine a more humiliating event. There's reason to believe that this was true for Jesus. But we find it virtually impossible to look upon his naked form or even consider it, given how embarrassing it feels. 
Our own discomfort is revealed even in the way we represent it artistically. With few exceptions, depictions of this event usually portray Jesus' loins covered with a cloth. This is not to argue in favor of a different way to portray Jesus' crucifixion, but rather to point out that although we assent theologically to how Good Friday delivered us from shame as well as sin, actually permitting ourselves to be there on that Friday, being with a naked Jesus, is an entirely different matter altogether. The point here is to emphasize that Jesus' literal, naked vulnerability is a testimony to us that he knows exactly what it is like to be us. To truly be with us, Jesus not only knows what it means to be vulnerable, he knows how painfully, frighteningly hard it is to live into it, given shame's threat. He knows the agony of sweating blood, looking for a way, any way, to avoid being stripped naked, being seen for who he was and left alone to die. He does not require anything of us that he does not first do himself. He knew the shame. He understood the shame that was coming. He was sorrowful even to death. He knew what he, he knew what was coming down the road for him, and he despised that shame. Again, the language of despising has to do with to scorn and to show that scorn by active insult. So as Jesus approached the cross, instead of bowing to the shame and saying, I don't want to be uncovered like this. I don't want to be hung out there like that. And all of this ugliness as the most beautiful being ever to live on this earth. I don't want to be looked at as ugly and to have people turn their heads from me and to be despised and rejected like that. He despised that shame. He insulted it by just going forward with it anyways. He was exposed. And when he was exposed, what Isaiah said in 53.4 would be true about him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, how's that for shame? Jesus is hanging on the cross in all of his beauty and perfection. They're dividing up his clothes. He's just naked and exposed. And you know what the conclusion of people standing around the cross was about him? He must be a really big sinner. He's stricken and smitten by God. Wow, he must have really blown it. Look at the treatment that God is giving him. Well, that's a lot to deal with. That's the shame that Jesus despised. That's the shame that Jesus faced and overcame it. This opens up a whole new way of life for us as believers because Jesus did this. I want to walk through a quote by R.C. Sproul. It's a bunch of them strung together. It's about four sentences. The deepest motivation for the wearing of human clothes is to cover our nakedness. There's a very real sense in which we do not want people to know what we are really like in secret. All the way through the Bible, the experience of nakedness is related to humiliation. When armies would capture warriors from another army, they would parade them naked. It was the practice of the Romans to crucify people naked. It was a punishment to strip people of their covering. No one of us wants to walk down the streets of our city naked, obviously. No one of us wants to have everything that we have ever done or said exposed to the whole world. What we want to cover more than anything else is our guilt. Another way of putting it is this. Shame preaches a sermon. Shame speaks really loudly. And it says this, if people really knew who you are and you were naked and exposed before God and everybody else, there is nobody who would possibly love you. Now, there's two things we can do with that. We can believe it 
We can obey it, and we can live a life that is controlled by our outward appearance before God. Trying to hide our sins from God, which is impossible, we know that theologically, but yet in our lives, we're trying to avoid having to deal with our sins before God. God, I'm even going to put on a front before you. I'm going to amass tons of external obediences so that you will accept me. Because God, if you really knew me for who I am, you would never be able to love me. We can also do this before other people. Uh, if people really knew me, they would never be able to love me. So we can obey shame or we can despise it and scorn it and pay it no regard when it speaks. Shame says your covering isn't enough. You were exposed. If God really knew what you were like, he wouldn't love you. The gospel says God already knows what you're like. He already knows everything about us. He knows more about what we're like than we do personally ourselves. And in love, he's provided us a covering for our sin. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So let me ask you a question. I've been asking myself this as well. I'm asking it right now. Are you living in the splendid clothing Jesus has provided you? Or are you living in the filthy clothing of appearance management, which you've clumsily draped over yourself in the desperate attempt to cover up who we really are? Which clothing are we living in? Jesus has given us clothing. Zechariah 3, 4, he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes, celebratory robes. Isaiah 61, 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. Why the singing? He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Love of Jesus was stripped naked so we could be clothed. He went through all that shame so that in him we could be accepted. He's done that for you and me. So now our life isn't anything about a show before God or a show before other people. We can actually be vulnerable now because we know we've been seen at our worst. Jesus Christ has faced all of our sin and all of its ugliness. He's been clothed with our worst and we are loved. That's amazing. That is life-changing for every single Christian. And then I want to close with this. Jesus cares for us in families. Verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So there are four ladies. There's been a lot of ink spilled in how many people are here. I'm gonna, there are four ladies standing here, Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, Salome, who is the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So if we're trying to piece this together, we discover that the apostle John, one of the sons of Zebedee, who's the writer of this book, is standing at the cross along with his mother, who's Mary's sister. And it would be consistent with John not to mention the name of his mother, nor his own name, which is why a lot of people conclude that this is John referring to himself, the, the one whom Jesus loved, but also his mother is unnamed. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, he fulfills his last duty toward his, toward his mother, toward his earthly parent. Joseph is out of the picture. Likely he has died. So Jesus has borne the burden, as it were, of caring for his mother, however those arrangements were made, and now, in the midst of all of his suffering, he is doing 
his one last deed, as it were, toward his earthly mother, taking care of her. What is noteworthy is that Jesus did not ask any of his brothers to do this. Now remember, Jesus has biological half-brothers, right, who were younger than him, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But we're told in John 7 that they didn't believe. And if you turn over to Acts 1.14, they're actually with Mary and some others uh, praying, etc. So it looks like after Jesus' death and resurrection, they did believe. But right now, Jesus actually commits his mom to John, the son of Zebedee. And before we walk into anything that that might mean, I want us just to take note of Jesus' perfect selflessness. He has been forsaken by his father. He has undergone punishment for our sin. He is no doubt exhausted as he hangs on the cross, like everyone would be. He's going through suffering like no one human being has ever seen before, not just not, not talking about the physical, but the spiritual, the torment that he went through. And in his mind and out of the overflow of his perfect heart comes love for his earthly mother, Mary. That's what is on his mind and heart. This is perfection, beloved. Put before our very eyes as recorded in the Gospels. Everybody else on there would be thinking, oh, this is horrible. This is miserable. Somebody help me. Jesus is actually helping people in front of him, fulfilling his obligations as a member of an earthly family. Now, he uses the language woman, not mother. He used this language back in John 2 at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, which kind of startled everybody. Why are you calling your earthly mother woman? Well, this is part of the soul that's going to pierce all the way into Mary's heart, that she's given birth to the Messiah and he's living with her for 30 years, let's say, but there's going to come a time when he has his public ministry, and now he's not regarded as simply her earthly son. But he's the Messiah, the Son of God, who needs to fulfill his tasks that are at hand. And so he says, woman, look, this is your son. Jesus relativizes by this biological family. He calls his earthly mother woman, and he does not entrust her to her biological sons, but to a believer. But he also shows us the importance of biological family. He cares for his mom. He didn't look at that commitment and say, oh, this is nothing. I've got bigger fish to fry. And he, he's, he's doing very big things. This is the pinnacle of our redemption, as it were, his work on the cross. But he did not pass as nothing. He did not pass by as nothing his duty toward his earthly mother. I want to mention this briefly without going too much into detail regarding this, but I think there are some implications for us. In a town like Pella, where biological family is just part of the culture, where families have roots that go back. I mean, if you mention your last name so often, what happens? People's minds go back 100 years. <laughs> They've made 200 connections. We call it Dutch bingo. I realize that's changing a little bit. The town's becoming less Dutch, more people moving in. But regardless, that's sort of the history of Pella. Nothing wrong with that. But what's easy to miss in the fray is the relative value of biological family and the degrading of spiritual family. 
Jesus entrusts his mom to John. He's a believer, not to his other brothers. And she went to live with him. He took her into his home. What's that tell us? Biological family is important. Jesus is caring for his mom, but it's not, it's not the only thing. That spiritual family is important. That our duties toward one another and God's family are important, and we are to lean on one another. And in a city like Springfield, Missouri, where Rashawn and I were for nine years, there's very little rootedness in that town by comparison. It was actually like a sort of like a pit stop on people's way out west. And the locals look at newcomers with a big eye of skepticism because they think, how long are you going to stay? And so if you're a local there, you sort of band together. But there's not this historical rootedness. There's a lot of first generation, a lot of retirees because the taxes are cheap. (laughs) So that's Springfield, Missouri. And in that town, domestic problems are huge. And biological family is looked at as you don't really have to commit to these people. You're just born into this family, just move on past them. But church family, oh, that is elevated through the roof to the extent that this often happens. People justify their neglect of their earthly family relationships. They justify it by saying, but I'm serving in the church. But I'm doing this for the church. But I'm evangelizing. But I'm out all night trying to reach lost people. And what Jesus shows us here is that actually both are important. Both are important. And so it takes wisdom to figure out what this looks like. Let none of us say, hey, I can come up with a really good reason to neglect my earthly family relationships. Oh, beloved, we are called to love our family members. Husbands, wives, parents, children. We've got some serious obligations to each other in our families. We do. We also have obligations to each other in the household of God. There are people who don't have families, first-generation Christians, people whose families have been ravaged by sin. And so we have duties toward our spiritual family as well. We can't neglect one, using the other as an excuse for that neglect. And I want us to consider one more thing as we close. Our elder brother, Jesus, cares for us in very practical ways. He didn't just pay for Mary's sins on the cross. He cared for her in just practical ways. And he cares for us in the exact same way. He's acting here as a great high priest. Isn't it amazing in the midst of all of his pain and suffering, pain and suffering that would have just annihilated us, He still cares, and he's going through the work of caring for people. Beloved, we might think Jesus is disconnected, removed from us, doesn't really care. He's out there some way. God the Father, sure, he governs everything, but I'm kind of making my own way in life, and he's not really governed over every second. No, something like this tells us it doesn't matter what God is doing in time or anywhere else in the world, whether it's the most difficult thing imaginable or not. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He cares for us intimately. Jesus as our brother, God the Father as our Father in heaven, who's perfect, down to how tall we are, down to hairs on our head, down to clothing and food, so we don't have to go around uh, worrying about things, just like the birds. We have a Father who's so faithful, so powerful, so compassionate toward us that no matter how many trillions of events are happening around the world, He's fully aware of and reigning over our situation in order to care for us in the most spiritually advantageous way, which fits us for heaven. And Jesus shows us that on the cross. Let's let's pray.